Hello and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science, going out across Australia on the Community Radio Network, where we're going to be talking for the next half hour about sciencey things. My name is Stu, and on the show this week, I'm going to be talking to Trent Penman, who is from the University of Melbourne's Forest Science Department, about uh, bushfire risks and um, what what are the warning signs of, of bad bushfire seasons and all that sort of thing. Um, there's um, been a huge heat wave up in New South Wales at the moment, hasn't there? Yeah, well, mm. there's the weather patterns this this summer season have been quite odd all over the country. Yeah. Um, you know, high rainfall in places like Perth, which never gets any summer rainfall, and lots of rainfall in places like Melbourne, which often gets bits and pieces of rainfall, but the temperatures have been all over the place. And yeah, yep. it's, it's a very, but I, I wanted to know uh, exactly what are, what is the, what are the weather patterns mean for bushfire risk? And is there any way to That's right. um, plan ahead? Because it's hard to, it's hard to add it all up for a person who doesn't know about it. So you need an expert to say. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Chris. Well, speaking of bushfires, bushfires, okay, this has gone a long stretch. Bushfires can damage like habitats. And those sort of things, can't they? You know, absolutely. They can, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, often what, do, often do, including like you know, um, mammals and and, and birds yeah. badly affected insects. I guess even. And um, what about amphibians? Amphibians could also be badly affected. What's your favourite amphibian? Ah, uh, salamander. No, oh, no, no, sorry, no, my no, second no, no, favourite no. frog. Frog, of course, it's a frog. Um, so I'm going to be talking about frogs, obviously, because it's like the, the most directly connected thing. But no, a particular thing about frogs, basically, the amazing kind of physics of how frogs catch insects with their tongues. I love that you've taken a wildlife story and just turned it into a story about physics. Everything is physics, Claire. You should know that. But no, I mean, if you think about it, frogs are pretty amazing how they can catch things with their tongues. Uh, I don't think you could do it. And nothing against you. My mind. Not specifically you. It depends. I mean, if someone was throwing popcorn at her face, she could probably catch it. (laughs) <laughs> not quite the same. Not, not quite, quite the same. same, no. No, no. But um, frogs have special powers and we'll be finding out frogs what those powers actually powers. are. They do. Stay tuned. Look, um, I'm getting a bit fatigued listening to this. What am I going to do about that, Chris? Uh, I think you should resolve to make better decisions, Stu. Okay. Oh, yes. Sorry, Agnes, we have a story from Manisha as well. Um, She's continuing her story of how to keep your New Year's resolutions. I mean, it's February now. Uh, It's probably about time you really kind of consider whether you can stick with these things or not. Maybe you're getting tired from the decision to have to continually do it every day. Manisha's going to talk about how to cope with decision fatigue, uh, which is uh, a thing that you have to work around when you are making your new habits that you're trying to form for your New Year's resolutions. Bushfires in Australia are a seasonal problem in, well, in most areas uh, of the country. Uh, and I've got on the phone with me today uh, Dr. Trent Penman, who is a senior lecturer in bushfire behaviour and management at the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences, which is part of the University of Melbourne. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Trent. Thanks for having me on. Now, what is it? Uh, what is it that you study at the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences? 
so our research group is focusing very much on um, trying to better improve our prediction of bushfires and their behaviour and also the impact um, these bushfires are likely to have on assets. So we look at the impact on houses and on people, but we also look at the environment and other infrastructure or um, valuable assets in the landscape. So we, we, we span from the very low intensity fires that we might use for prescribed fire or fuel treatments right through to the large large bushfires um, and those events. And we, we try and work out how we can use fire and manage fire um, to reduce the risk to people in our landscape. Okay, so, I mean, the, fact that, the very fact that we need people studying bushfires means that they're very likely to happen um, periodically in Australia. What, what is it about Australia that makes bushfires uh, such, a, such a part of the landscape? I guess almost every ecosystem in Australia um, has some form of fire regime uh, that can vary quite widely. And when we talk about fire regimes, we're not talking about just the big bushfires we see on the news. It's the whole range of the smaller fires, uh, some of the medium-sized fires and, and the big fires as well. And it's the sequence of those events um, that we have to study and ha have to understand. So we have thing, uh, ecosystems like Tasmania. Uh, we had some bad fires there in the last few years. And these were possibly once in a millennia or once in multiple millennia type fires. If we go to the other end of the continent and look in the Northern Territory, we have areas there that can get burnt um, once or sometimes even twice a year. And these fires are quite frequent and we, um, that's one of the most fire prone parts of Australia is up in the Northern Territory. The reason that they get such frequent fires up there is that they have the wet season and the dry season and they have grassy ecosystems. In the grassy systems, in the wet season, the grass will grow so there'll be fuel there to burn and it dries off in the dry season and makes it available to burn at some stage there, provided they get an ignition. If we look in our forested systems, the fuel accumulation or the, the rate at which fuel becomes available is a little bit slower, and that, that varies depending on where you are in the landscape. Uh, so some of the, the forests, uh, like the mountain ash, which have slower accumulation rates but also stay um, damp in many seasons, um, and so their fuel's not as available as often, so we see much longer periods between fires in those systems, sometimes in the order of decades. Um, so we have a quite a variety of systems in Australia and a quite a variety of fire regimes, um, and almost no two fire re regimes are the same. That, I guess that makes it um, a little bit difficult to sort of uh, have, have broad uh, risk assessments for every area in Australia that sort of blanket everything. You'd have to sort of uh, have, a, have a particular um, assessment for a specific area. Yeah, that's very true. Um, just uh, what works well in one, one part of the country will not necessarily work well in other parts of the country. We do know some relatively broad principles that, that, that tend to work, but what we really need to understand is um, the range of factors that lead to creating that risk and how that varies across the different regions, and that'll allow us to develop strategies that will be um, more appropriate for where we are. Um, if we take our, I guess, our forest-grass sort of dichotomy, Strategies in a grassier system need to be more regular and they need to be thinking about how that fuel can be managed um, year to year um, because they're potentially available every year, whereas strategies um, in forests that take longer to accumulate and the fires are less likely on an annual basis um, need to consider a different aspects. So we might be looking at uh, when these big fires happen, we've got limited ability to control the impact of the fires. Um, so looking at strategies to ensure people are out of the way of the fires, either by not living in those areas or by making sure they've got plans to evacuate early so that we can get as many people as possible away from the, the danger areas. 
Are there any uh, are there any sort of um, warning signs that a particular season is going to be uh, of a higher risk rating than other seasons? I mean, I, I don't mean you know summer and winter. I mean from year to year. I mean, I guess in in southern parts of Australia, the fire season is probably in the summer. Um, but so, would there be anything that you would uh, that you would look at? before the summer actually hits that would let you know that maybe this year is going to be a, a, a higher risk year for fire? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of factors that you would, could take into consideration and um, the Bureau of Meteorology each year put out a seasonal forecast about their, their likelihood of bad weather um, for fires in different systems. And that's, that's quite important and used by agencies to start thinking about how they might place resources around their state. Um, in order to, to try and reduce the risk through, through those methods. Um, other things we need to look at are, are long-term drying patterns as well. So particularly in the wetter forests, they don't, I guess, switch on or become available to burn every year. And we can look at whether or not there's been a preceding drought over the winter um, and even the summer before to see whether these, these areas are getting primed for the likelihood of fire. Um, the, the, forecast, the weather forecasters can look ahead to what sort of summer we're likely to have, whether it's going to be hot and dry or hot and wet. And obviously the wetter the summer is, the less likely we are to have fires. Um, but I really wouldn't like the job of forecasting because there's a lot of challenges there and um, you tend to get criticised if you get it wrong and not thanked if you get it right. So um, it's a dangerous position to be in. But uh, we can look across the season when, and say that there's an increased chance. We, we can never guarantee it. And I guess we also, the patterns of ignitions are very much the same. We know what, where ignitions are more likely than others, um, but we don't know exactly where they're going to occur. So it's very hard to plan precisely for uh, where the next big fire might be coming from. I guess um, the, the next question I have is um, more to do with, I guess, the difference between weather and climate. Now, weather predictions are tricky at the best of times um, to predict the weather accurately, but um, future climate uh, changes or will, will, will uh, predicted changes to the climate itself um, have, obviously, they'll have some impact, will have a great impact on bushfire regimes and what's the sort of, uh, I guess, um, the range of potential outcomes of a warming climate uh, on, on bushfire risk? Yeah, it's quite a challenging question. Um, at, yeah, we certainly see that the, the climate models are predicting are, are warming and, and probably are drying for most areas, although there are a couple of areas where we might see it a, a little bit wetter, but generally it's a drying condition. So the bushfire weather is certainly getting worse. How that actually then translates into bushfire risk is, a, is far more complex. So we know as things get hotter and drier, we get less fuel on the ground. Um, and because, is, that, is that because of less plant growth? Yeah, so the, the trees are, um, are not producing as much, but also hotter and drier conditions will lead to a breakdown of the fuels as well. Okay. So they're not producing as much litter and we're getting a, um, to a certain extent, it's decaying in a different way. So um, the studies that have been around in a range of systems um, have shown there's a reduced fuel load. What we're also likely to see is a, sh a shift in vegetation communities over decades and centuries. And so some of the highly flammable systems, um, I guess where we, talk, we see our massive fires, are probably more under threat because they're in wetter environments and they have a certain climate that they need. 
Now, if we do see a short-term increase in fires, that's also going to affect these communities. So our mountain ash forest, for example, they're a classic example, can't deal with high-frequency fires. So if we see a shift in climate that we see more fires, we're actually going to see a loss of these systems faster and then reduce it to what we'd probably call a less flammable state. Um, so while it might have um, a positive effect, I guess, on bushfire risk, it's going to have a very negative environmental effect. So it's really hard to know what's going to happen in the future with fires. Um, it's not as simple as the weather goes up, so the fires go up. In fact, once all these things are played out, it's possible that we might see less fire in some systems and a change in risk. But it may be that that risk is lower, but um, more frequent, if, if you like. Um, so the short answer is we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess we'll be uh, we'll be watching that carefully um, as as uh, as changes start occurring. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's probably it is very important to put in put in place some monitoring strategies so that we can start to understand how these things are shifting. And and really, it's it's how the environment changes um, and the rate at which that changes that's going to dictate how our risk will be shifting uh, more than the weather. I think. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting work that you're doing up there, um, Trent, um, and uh, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science to talk about your work in, uh, in bushfire prediction and risk. Thanks very much for having me on. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. You're all listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and... Frogs are pretty cool. I think we can all agree. Frogs, I like frogs. Frogs are great. Frogs are great. I mean, they're, 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 they're cooler than most of us, I would say. Not just because they're cold-blooded, but because they can do many cool things. And they metamorphosize. That's they do. pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. The complete whole metamorphosis too. Complete. None yeah, of this complete. partial. None of, none of this partial metamorphosis <laughs> that insects do. No, it's complete Where, metamorphosis. How are insects partial? Well, the, one, the ones that start off as tiny versions of their adult form oh, yeah, and yeah. then just sort of get bigger isn't that what humans do as well no, we don't shed our skin as we go so my, ah, fav- my right, favorite okay. ones though partial, are the partial metamorphosis well, actually we do shed our skin as we go yeah we don't shed our exoskeletons <laughs> as we go we're not really metamorphosizing though are we no no, no. but uh, my favorite with the insects are the ones where they go into the cocoon and they just turn into mush yeah that's yeah. that's real weird isn't it's it disgusting and, yeah, and apparently disgusting. and apparently that they can even though there's nothing uh concrete left of the caterpillar mm. it can still remember things that it learned as a caterpillar when it turns into a moth or a butterfly it doesn't have much to remember no 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 but they've trained them to to oh, okay. do certain things right yeah. anyway amazing well, frogs amazing. frogs don't do don't do that quite no. as, as drastic one thing they can do that's amazing though is they can catch insects with their tongues and we all know this we've seen the cartoons um um, but they do this like it's really spectacular. They can do it very, very quickly. So um, faster than you can blink, a, a cat, a cat, a frog can catch uh, a fly or other insect. Um, it's been timed at roughly seven hundredths of a second, which is about the fifth of the time it takes you to blink. So, so blink and you'll miss it. Basically, yeah. Wow. They could do it five times while you're blinking. And they, the tongue obviously moves very fast. Uh, apparently, the, the acceleration that it, that it undergoes is about 12 G. Uh, so 12 times the acceleration <laughs> wow. due to gravity. I mean, it's not like an That's astronaut. It's a lot. It is a lot. And a they lot. Can, does their tongue like go unconscious when it hits 12 G? <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it's operating pretty automatically, <laughs> I would imagine. And it, they're pretty strong. They can pull 1.4 times the frog's own weight up to 1.4 times the frog's own weight. Their tongue yeah. can pull 1.4 times their own yeah, weight. That's yeah, amazing. That is pretty amazing. So they could, I guess, in theory. They're that, that far side cartoon where the frog gets the um, the aeroplane and it gets dragged from the sky. That could happen. Um, if you had an aeroplane that was less than 1.4 times the weight of no, the No, no, the frog didn't. The frog pulled itself up. Oh, right. So it didn't okay. pull the plane down to it. The oh, frog right, pulled okay. itself up in the cartoon. <laughs> anyway, so question is, how do they do this? Because um, catching something like that, you know, obviously you've got to have some really good stickiness of the tongue to be able to catch something and move it that fast, you know, especially for something that's 1.4 times the frog's own weight. So this is like one of the mysteries. I mean, because And it is a stickiness situation. It isn't a wrapping the tongue around it. There is a little bit of that. Okay. But there is stickiness as well, Claire. Um, because, you know, because insects are quite... I mean, they're not necessarily totally clean. They're covered with hair as well. Um, if you think about if you get like a sticky thing, like a bit of sticky tape, you try to pick up something quickly with it, like a fly or something. If you move it that fast, it's going to be very sticky to be able to adhere to an insect. Well, we used to get, there used to be toys when I was a kid that were basically a little plastic frog thing. Yeah. And it had a sticky tongue that you could slap on, you know, your mate's schoolwork while you're at, you know, trying to do their homework and steal the paper off their desk. Okay, so maybe this isn't as remarkable as it is because Stu used to do this when he was a kid. Well, anyway, no, look, some people have studied this. So there's um, a biomechanical engineer, Alexis Knoll from Georgia Tech in America. Uh, she and her colleagues, they they examined this. They, they videoed uh, a number of different species of frogs and toads at the Atlanta Zoo and they, to work out exactly what they did, and then they tested the properties of frog tongues and their saliva. Um, because a lot of it comes down to the properties of the saliva. So they tested the, veloc the viscosity of the saliva using a, a rheometer, which is an instrument designed for testing viscosity. Um, they needed to scrape the tongues of 15 frogs to get enough saliva to be able to test it because you needed a certain amount before the, the instrument worked. And what they found is that the saliva is a particular type of non-Newtonian fluid that displays shear thinning. Right. I see a few blank looks. Oh, well, I know what a non-Newtonian fluid is. Yeah, but it's a stir-thickening fluid, just like cornflower slime. Well, right? no, not necessarily stir-thickening, but it behaves differently depending on the forces that's applied to it. Yeah, that's, that's quite correct. This is kind of a bit the opposite. So um, basically, this is shear thing. So when there's a shear, like say if you had a bit of the fluid say, between your fingertips, the viscosity goes down. Mm. So um, there are quite a few fluids that, that um, display this property, um, tomato sauce. Is one. That's why when you shake the bottle, it flows. Right? But otherwise, it just sticks to the, the size of the bottle. Paint is another. Like you can brush on paint fairly easily and get it. Then it sticks to the wall. It doesn't come off. Uh, even whipped cream, I'm told, is uh, is a bit of a sheer thinning. Maybe I'm not sure. So sure about that. Look, I, I don't. I'm not interested in getting thinner layers of whipped cream to find out. I want more whipped cream. That's well, this is true. <laughs> that's what we should aim for. But I guess saying you know you 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 move with the spoon. You can you can you can you know whip the spoon through it quite well. But then it stays fairly solid when mm. you're not doing that. So this is this is a thing with um with uh these these sheer thinning fluids. So this um this saliva, the frog saliva, it's normally in normal state, it's um it's more viscous than honey. But under uh, a shear force, um, it can get to 50 times less viscous. Um, so what happens is when the, the frog, like it shoots out its tongue, when it hits the insect, there's, at the point of impact, there's a 
big shear forces against the insect and the saliva goes very runny and basically it coats the insect and all the saliva flows into nooks and crannies and stuff like that. But then the tongue kind of wraps around the insect and holds it in place and the, the saliva turns viscous. So, um, so while, while the saliva is moving... Disgusting. While the saliva is moving, it's, yeah. it's, it moves very quickly. It flows very quickly. It flows very quickly. And then yeah. when it sort of stops moving, yeah. it gets all sticky again. It gets all sticky, yeah. Right. And so, yeah, the frog tongue is, it is very soft. Um, they, they measure the, the softness of frog tongues. They're about 10 times. <laughs> what sort of unit do you use to measure the softness of a frog tongue? There is tongue? a unit. They said it's 10 times softer than human tongues. 10 times softer? They said it's about a softer. On soft the tongue as... softness scale. <laughs> the other comparison they said was soft as a brain. Um, oh, I'm not sure God. whose brain, but that's probably not. Oh, Think of the tongue better than the. Jesus, scientists, you need to work on yeah. your PR. It's soft as a brain. Come soft on. as a brain. Well, it is. It is. It is soft. So it's enough to wrap around the insect. Also, um, out of a point of interest, it um, their tongues are attached near the front of their mouths, unlike ours, which are the back of the mouth. So I guess it can shoot out easier if it's at the front of the mouth. But anyway, so then the, the trick is: so it wraps around the insect, and when it pulls it back at this high speed, it actually acts a bit like a, it, it stretches, it's, it's kind of elastic, the tongue. So it's, it's a bit like a bungee cord. If you think about like a bungee cord, it doesn't rip your ankle mm. off. Um, this is the same thing, you know, it absorbs, the, the soft material of the tongue absorbs some of the, the, the force of pulling yeah, back so that it doesn't... Sort of elastic? It doesn't, yeah, so that yeah. it manage to hold the insect still in place using the viscous saliva. And then once it gets into the mouth, something even more gross happens though. Bring it on. Um, okay, so the because you've got this 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 viscous saliva on the tongue that's holding the insect, you need to then shear, get a shear force again to release the insect so it can swallow it. Um, and the way it does that is it pulls its eyeballs into its <laughs> into its mouth cavity and they push against the insect and sort of slide it off the tongue, creating more shear force that makes the saliva viscous again. You got that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. probably the grossest thing I've heard all day. That is, that is crazy. Anyway, so this is um the magic properties of the frog saliva. Now, of course, you with these, you get the usual things of that maybe they could make some new adhesives. Um, talking about you know for uh, conveyor belts perhaps or manufacturing plants or maybe have drones who can pick things up like frogs do. But really, I think it's just cool knowing about frogs and their special tongue spit powers uh, they use to catch bugs and their weird eyeball swallowing. Their weird eyeball methods. swallowing. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. So today I'll be continuing my mini-series on how to best change, break, or make habits. So far, I've shared two tips on how to best um, do this to achieve your big dreams and your big goals. In week one, I discussed setting smaller, more attainable goals or targets as part of your larger resolution. 
The achievements along the way will positively reinforce your new behavior and will keep will help you keep on track um, with the new behavior as you move closer and closer to your dreams. Are you thinking of like putting out kind of a self-help kind of I should, app shouldn't or something? I? Yeah, I have su- I have the voice for it, don't we'll, I? We'll re- repackage our podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sell it for the Manisha, masses. Coach Manisha. Sounds right. That yeah, sounds good. That's good, yeah. Mm. Mm, yeah, follow me and you'll never go wrong. Um, okay, so in week one, we discussed setting smaller, more attainable goals. And um, last week, I discussed how to incorporate new habits into your routine using the if-then planning method. The technique is designed to set our manageable contingencies uh Sorry, the technique is designed to set out manageable contingencies that work with our existing routine. If it is past 3 p.m., then I won't have coffee. If my my paycheck comes in, then I'll put away $100 into my savings account. If it is Sunday, then I will call my grandparents. Um, By creating the contingency, our our brains will look out for our if condition, even when we're not conscious of it, helping us to remember to complete our small manageable task. So this week, I'd like to move on, and my next tip is to keep things simple. Believe it or not, our brains experience what is known as decision fatigue. You can think of this as almost like a maximum quota of decisions that we can make within any given um, time frame. And by overdoing it, we end up exhausted and unwilling to continue with the task at hand. This is often what happens when we set goals or New Year's resolutions. So say I'm trying to read more. Um, So if I wanted to try to read more and try to save myself from the decision fatigue, I should find a reading list or maybe compile a reading list that I of books that I already know that I want to read. Um, Oh, so you don't so you don't have to get to the end of the book and then go, oh, no, oh, what do I read next? Exactly. Right. So so every time I want to pick up a book, I don't have to actually think about doing that additional work to find which book I should read or, or anything like that. The decision's already made for me. I go down the list okay. and I do the next or I read the next book on the list. So you sort of minimizing the number of decisions you need to make. Is that we only have so much willpower. If we add additional choices and decisions, we have to exert much more willpower and make more formulated decisions before even beginning our task. Instead, by removing the choices, you're in a better position to get straight onto your task um, before the procrastination can even take over. This technique was described by Kathleen Vose and her colleagues in a 2008 paper in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. The authors studied decision making in a group of in different groups of participants, and all of the participants were um, presented with choices about consumer goods or um, either sorry either about consumer goods or about university course selection. And one subset of the participants was asked to make a decision, while the other was given all the same options, but they weren't required to make any formal decision about the information. The authors concluded that making the decision depletes some of our self-control resources, as they said, or as they put it. And the participants uh, that had to make um, any sort of decision displayed behaviors of lower self-control, things like um, high levels of procrastination or less physical stamina. Self-control was lower. uh, Oh, I just said that, sorry. Uh, this technique was actually even used by Barack Obama while he was in office. I'm not sure if a lot of our res- listeners um, have heard about this, but he chose to only wear blue and gray suits while he was in office because he didn't want to actually have to exert the energy of making the decision on what he'll be wearing. Um, instead, he conserved the, that energy to make 
uh, decisions on what should have been more important issues. Not sure what he made those decisions on, but yeah. There, there was some. There was some scientist who always who had just the same clothes in his wardrobe as well, so he didn't have to make decisions about what they wore. Yeah. So they I could think spend their brain power, thing, yeah. you know, thinking about more important, important things. things yeah. yeah. I think Although Inspector I think Gadget if... did the same thing. He always wore the same <laughs> trench coat and. Well, so did Inspector Clouseau, but I don't know. He was making better decisions. On yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I get all of these references. I really <laughs> do. Um, this um, this technique actually also works if your goal is to try to break a habit. Um, so say you want to stop snacking, just don't buy the snacks. You've removed the decision and you don't have to exert any willpower um, when you have to stop yourself from going to the pantry to pick up your snacks. Um, if your goal is to prepare dinner every night, Instead of um, relying on takeaway, then maybe uh, your the work that you do is your meal prep and you set a schedule for what you're eating. That way, when you come back from a particularly long or exhausting day, you can't really just rely on takeaway. You have everything set up for you, so you don't have mm. to. You, I suppose you could always rely on takeaway. I tend to. But the point being that if you have everything set up and in place at the time, you don't have to actually make the decision or exert yeah. any willpower to follow through with at least have the plan. takeaway menus on the fridge door or in a handy folder yeah, by the phone. I, should, yeah. I shouldn't debunk my own tips as i'm saying them but you for could, everybody you could, you could even you could even you know cook some meals in advance if, in case you're really tired and you can't even be bothered you know combining the ingredients this is getting yes. into like you know does past you have the is more willpower than future you and that kind of thing does sunday you have more willpower than wednesday yeah you? i don't <laughs> sunday me cannot be relied on for anything i'll tell yeah. you that now well yeah we'll, i'm the we'll, same way we'll warn you next maybe Saturday. you should yeah. be doing these tips week by week and changing those unreliable behaviors chris Mm, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Anyways, you I can't see Manisha wagging her finger, but she kind of was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the full set of five tips and then they'll choose which is which I like best. Oh, or you can do all five. Um, anyways, so um, this week's tip was to keep things simple. Um, take away some of the decisions you have to make in your daily routine to help you um, stay on track for your goals. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.